For Creamer Media's Polity, I'm Lumgile Ngomfe. Joining me is author and director of the Brenthurst Foundation, Greg Mills, here to discuss his latest book, Rich State, Poor State. Your book investigates why some countries realize economic prosperity while others fail. Can you highlight a few of the reasons why this happens? Well, the book really starts off with the premise uh, in asking the question, can countries reform themselves out of their current circumstances? And in the range of case studies that I look at, there's more than 20 case studies in the book in various shapes and forms. I mean, the answer is definitely yes. Uh, reforms do make a difference. Your choices make a difference. Your inheritance is not necessarily the the feature that determines the developmental outcome. And this is especially important to Africa right now because we're about to double our population numbers over the next generation. We're going to be more than 2.5 billion people in the African continent, the largest source of young people in the world. And we do have to come up with different developmental answers to those that we've managed over the last 60 years, which have traditionally been around trying to close off our economies from the outside world, uh, to try and redistribute our economic wealth to across racial or identity grounds. Uh, and uh, it's been really about a externalist view of development in the sense that financing and assistance in the form of aid had to come from abroad. And what my book argues through these various case studies is that that's actually done us very badly. Africa's share of global per capita income has in fact fallen from 30 to 15 percent over the last 60 years, whereas somewhere like Southeast Asia, for instance, has gone also from 30 percent uh, 60 years ago uh, to more than 100 percent today. And so the answers really lie in what countries, including some of those in Southeast Asia, some of those which are looked at in this book, like Singapore and Vietnam, have done. Countries which have managed similar reform processes, including those in Europe like Spain, for instance, and Poland, to take two different generations of reform have done, or Mexico in Latin America. But it also looks at examples in Africa, like Botswana, done very well in the beginning, less so towards uh, the, the sort of end of the first uh, decade of the 21st century, and Morocco, uh, and of course South Africa itself. And we tr I try to pinpoint the reasons why some countries do well, why some countries reform, but perhaps more importantly, why they keep those reforms going over a long period of time. And that's perhaps the most important part. You can't just have a burst of reform. You need to have stamina in the reform process. You need not to be a prisoner of your past. You need to understand your past you can't lose sight of what you're trying to do in terms of that past history, but you can't be a prisoner of your past and try and literally sort of divorce yourself from that reality. And I think countries in Southeast Asia have done that perhaps best of all. I mean, if Vietnam was a prisoner of its past, it would be a prisoner of four periods of colonial rule by the Chinese, by the French, by the Japanese, and then a sort of neo-colonial period by the Americans after 1945. It shook that off in the mid-1980s after its wars of liberation and looked forward. It looked out of the front windscreen of the cars that were not out of the rearview mirror. Um, you need to always have good crises. You need to use crises to institute reforms. You need to grow and develop, not simply redistribute. 
you need to play to your strengths in the global economy and you need to make tough decisions and one of the things that Africa has been very poor at doing is although it sets up these grand visions and sometimes they're beautifully structured plans it's been very poor at making the tough decisions that go with those plans to enable implementation and execution. In fact, our own country, South Africa, is perhaps the worst of all because there's a political cost always to, to carrying out some tough decisions and we don't double down on tough decisions, we double down on easy ones. So the book is really about these series of case studies and then it coalesces them into lessons for strategy and lessons for leadership. Uh, which is perhaps the most important component at all. Development is not a technical process. Development is not about getting technical things right. It's fundamentally about getting politics and leadership and strategy right. In efforts to grow and diversify the economies of developing nations, has it been shown to be appropriate for governments to retain their relationships with multinational conglomerates? Well, absolutely, because multinational conglomerates, although they pick up a lot of flack uh, and get a lot of bad press, as places like Singapore realised, they're very important to bringing in skills, bringing in technology, raising the standard of operations, both among the population, but also in terms of that technology in the host nation. But they're very important in terms of bringing in networks, creating value chains for businesses. That's one of the unseen benefits of multinational corporations, is they do integrate you very quickly with the global economy. Yes, of course, the downsides have to be managed, and it's the responsibility of governments to manage those downsides. Uh, it's not the responsibility necessarily of the companies themselves. But over, overall, in terms of what they've brought to developing economies, they've brought tremendous benefits. And it's normally, interestingly enough, local elites who feel threatened by multinational companies who are among the most vociferous opponents. But they're protecting privilege and privileged access rather than doing things in the interests of the wider population. And I think one of the, the great lessons of African economic history, of Africa's political economies, and this is after all a book about political economies over the last 60 years, has been colonialism and the post-colonial environment was really about replacing one set of elites with another. One set of elites that looked like me with another set of elites that looked more like you. But that did very little for the population. In fact, in some cases brought about more inefficiency because those elites who were substituting the earlier rulers didn't have the levels of efficiency or training or technology or market knowledge which their predecessors had. Uh, and so redistribution is a way of satisfying elites but it's not a way of satisfying, and hasn't proven as such in Africa, a way of satisfying uh, the wider population. So we really do need a liberation from not just, not just in a political sense, but a liberation from the old ways of doing business around really extractive economies, uh, which are extractive in terms of elite behavior as much as they're extractive in terms of endowments, to more inclusive economies which are, have a wider field of, of vision for the overall population and not just for the politically connected elites. That has probably, I think, been the single most negative factor in African development over the last 60 years, not multinational companies.
How sustainable is the reliance on natural resources for developing countries? Should it be a priority for developing countries to diversify away from a reliance on raw material exports? Well, you've got to play to your strengths. I mean, if your strengths are natural resource area, then you've got to play to those. Um, we spend a lot of time uh, in Africa discussing the need for beneficiation. We want to turn copper into you know, pots and pans or electrical cables or into now EV batteries, for instance. Um, but we should play to our strengths. If we don't have lots of energy, or if we're a very long way from marketplaces, or we're a very long way from the, the types of industries that make those conversions, then we should focus rather on getting the stuff out of the ground and turning it into very high-grade ignits or whatever material that might be and then exporting it as efficiently as possible in retaining as much value in the domestic producer as, as we can. And what we have focused on, we've, we've gone down a lot of blind alleys in Africa in focusing on beneficiation. Um, as a way of trying to increase value, whereas in fact we're spending electricity on beneficiation which could increase more value elsewhere, for example on education or on healthcare uh, or in providing to basic households. Uh, and we've spent lots of money on trying to subsidize businesses to pick certain types of winners when we should really let the market do that for us. You know, Chile, to take another example, used to produce the same amount of copper as Zambia in the early 1970s. Zambia then nationalized its copper mines and Chile now produces almost 10 times the volume of copper that Zambia does. Uh, and that's because people invested in an environment which they saw was predictable, was reasonably low cost, there was elements of political instability but was predictable in terms of its, its policy regime. And the Chileans were interested in doing one thing and one thing only and that was getting as much copper out of the ground as possible uh, because that was their comparative advantage and they played to that strength. They weren't interested in, in beneficiating it more than it made economic sense to extract it. So. I think when we come to natural resources, we need a bit of a revolution in our thinking. It's not our only strength. In fact, uh, it's one of our strengths. We shouldn't let it determine policy overall. We should provide competitive policies which compare to other natural resource producers around the world. And we should use those proceeds to invest in other things, particularly in education, and particularly in infrastructure, and we've been very poor at doing that. Much of the wealth of natural resources in Africa has been squandered. It's been redistributed among elites. It's been expended on uh, vanity projects, on stadiums, on crazy diversification schemes. So natural resources can be a tremendous benefit, tremendous developmental advantage for any country if it's properly managed and handled. We're doing this interview in Johannesburg this was a city that was built on what was under the ground. There was no good reason for being in Johannesburg other than uh, the gold resources that were found there. There's no rivers here to speak of. There's no, there's no natural geography that makes sense to have a large city here. This was a city founded on gold. And it spawned an economy uh, of this incredible size, uh, disproportionately responsible for for a very large share of South Africa's output relative to its population. So natural resources can be turned to good. It's simply dependent on the way in which you manage them. Botswana, for instance, has managed them very well. Other countries less so. 
In the book, you question whether liberation movements have the capacity to implement economic reforms. Why do you think this is? And what are the consequences from growth and development? Well, I wrote an earlier book called uh, Africa's Third Liberation because you need a second liberation often from the liberators themselves and then you need a third liberation from those old ways of, of running your economy, that old extractive elite-based economy which simply redistributes wealth and proceeds among a very small number of its population. I think national liberation movements have been particularly uh, inept um, and unsuited to processes of development because they come into power for a different purpose. Uh, they come into power for p reasons of political liberation and then they very quickly, at least if the record is to be viewed across Africa, lose their way. Um, they then have to meet, try and meet those very high expectations. In many instances they are unsuited to that task in terms of their skill sets. And then they of course have to duplicate a needy bunch of cadres within their ranks. Uh, and they have to of course provide them with jobs, you see burgeoning civil services, you see all sorts of instances of corruption which emerge out of this as, as elites are bought and paid off by the system uh, and they go down a very well-trodden path. They still hang around in southern Africa, it's the only area of Africa that liberation movements have still uh, got their foot in the door, but political environments are definitely turning overall against them towards more competitive systems of politics. And more competitive systems of politics are a key part of the answer to our development conundrum. We have done so poorly because there isn't the competition for ideas, that there isn't accountability at every area of government, that there isn't the development of a meritocracy in our institutions and the institutions are a very key part of the delivery process in terms of fairness but also in terms of efficiency. So this third liberation uh, as well as the second liberation from the liberators themselves is necessary. You can't just get rid of a liberation movement, you also have to change the way in which the economy is structured and the economy is run. Now if the liberation movements themselves can do that all well and good. They can be both the liberators in political terms and the liberators in economic terms. But that has hitherto not really happened across Southern Africa and you have the most extreme examples like Zimbabwe on the one hand, but you also have South Africa following unfortunately much the same pattern of elite redistribution, of churn amongst that elite as people gain from the favours of government, of increasingly high levels of corruption. I think people like to think they peaked under Jacob Zuma, but uh, I think they have mutated uh, under subsequent governments into different forms. The system still remains, and it's a system which essentially cuts out the majority of South Africans from its benefits. Yes, they get SASA grants, but they don't have a fair crack at uh, realizing their own personal development potential and playing a full part in their society. So the liberation movements have to change or the political system has to correct. Can you mention some of the principles for action attributed to Singapore and its evolution from a third to a first world country? And also reflects on whether Singapore is a useful point of reference given that it is essentially a city-state with a very different reality to most other developing countries? 
No, I mean, there are very big differences, and, and one of the points I make in this book is, is that you can't take one set of circumstances and simply transplant it as a template for another. But you can pick out key lessons and pull threads through various developmental experiences. And I think one of the lessons you can learn from Singapore is the importance of not being a prisoner of your past. If the Singaporeans had focused on their colonial history rather than embracing it and utilizing all the best features of it while remembering, not ever forgetting, its very negative aspects, I think that's a positive lesson to be taken out of it. I think overall the importance of phasing in terms of Singapore's development experience, uh, the way in which Lee Kuan Yew went about a carefully phased process, he gave Singaporeans a stake in success, both creating jobs but also building housing complexes simultaneously. Um, yes, it was easier given the scale, but it was also very difficult. If you'd said in 1965 when Singapore and Malaysia's federation broke apart that Singapore was going to be the success that it is today. Everyone would have poo-pooed uh, that notion. This was a malaria-ridden tiny little island that had no obvious developmental advantages at a time that people automatically assumed that big was better. Now we say small is better, so we can't take the examples from Singapore. Um, but I think that Singapore has shown that if you do phase these things in, that you do have very clear-headed leadership that's willing to take responsibility, that is willing to focus resources on execution, on actual implementation, and not just say things that never happen, uh, which we are pretty much world champions at doing, but actually say things and then get them done, and then build on that and go to the next thing. Uh, that's, that's a very important part of the lesson. And, and I think the other thing is everyone's on the same page. Everyone sings from the same hymn sheet in Singapore, but behind the scenes they're very big discussions and very big disagreements. But once they have decided on things, and I use the example of Go Chok Tong in the book, once they've decided on things, uh, people go ahead in unified fashion and actually deliver on them. Uh, and I don't think we can say that we do, do it in quite the same way. So those are lessons, I think, for us, the lessons of a multicultural society and managing all those different strains and stresses in the process. So in spite of its size, in spite of the fact that today probably Singapore, given its wealth, over $50,000 per capita, uh, and Africa's at $1,500 per capita, seems aspirational, we should remember where they have come from. And in 1965, uh, two generations ago, it looked very similar to many African circumstances, and that should give us heart. To what extent does populism and corruption impede a country's efforts to reform? Well, I think populism you know, is a feature of our time. It goes hand in hand with high levels of media uh, activity. Uh, and and it, it's a political reality. It's mutated, it's always been there. Uh, politicians love to promise to be able to get into power. I think it's become more extreme and uh, unfortunately many electorates don't hold them to their promises. They simply just take their promises and, and, and forget about them until the next election comes around where they, they rekindle them in more extreme versions and the electorate doesn't really say, but hang on, didn't you promise us that last, this last time? And then of course, identity, race, religion, tribalism, all plays a part in, in, in populism as well. It's certainly an element which I think impedes development, 
because it, it, it generally encourages uh, spendthrift economic policies um, and a politics that promises instant gratification. And there's no such thing in development as instant gratification. It's a long, hard process, as I've said, where you require stamina. Uh, you re it's a marathon without a finishing line. Um, and politics is, is a staccato interval where people making more and more outrageous promises. Um, and it's our responsibility as the electorate to hold them to account. It's to say, but hang on, didn't you tell us that this last time or the time before that? Uh, didn't you say exactly the same thing? Where's that money going to come from? And the problem with populism is like the problem generally with socialism, is that eventually you run out of somebody else's money and then you run up very high levels of debt and there tends to be some form of economic collapse and restructuring uh, and then a more conservative government and then you go through the whole cycle once more. So it's a phenomenon that we have to live with. It's not new, it's just taken a different form in the media and digital media age. Um, and as electorates, we have to be, uh, I think, um, slightly more cautious about the promises that are made and, and hold people to count. What is your overarching message to government leaders around the world who are failing to direct their nations towards sustained economic growth and economic prosperity? Well, I think several lessons, firstly, or several messages. Firstly, you, you can use policy as a development tool. Your circumstances shouldn't dictate your development fortunes. Uh, they're going to shape your policies, certainly, but they shouldn't dictate your outcomes. Look at the, the range of case studies in this book, for instance. Um, countries with obvious natural resource endowments are not necessarily the most successful. It depends on the way in which you use them. A lot depends on leadership and institutions and governance, in a single word. And the way in which leaders strike out on a developmental path, the way in which they use their mandate for change. They don't use their mandate for self-enrichment or to win their next election. The next election is won because of the change, not simply because of uh, the way in which they have pandered to their key constituencies. And so it takes a sort of uh, a memorable leadership. And I do think that one of the challenges we have today is that leadership is, is often lacking in the task before it in this highly complex world that we face with many pressures uh, happening simultaneously and we don't I think see the sort of leadership stepping up to the plate in part because politics is such a messy business and nobody wants it in their lives or their lives dictated by it and the type of people that you get becoming political leaders tend to be more narcissistic than they are selfless in their in their ideas of public service. So I, I think that the, the lesson is that things can change firstly. Uh, there's other people that done it, have inherited terrible situations and have turned them around very quickly through policy change. Um, we don't need less globalization, which is often something that's thrown out particularly with multinational corporations. Africa needs more globalization. 98% uh, of the world's wealth lies outside of the African continent. We need more globalization to access it and systems that go with it. Often regional integration is a very uh, useful method, not just of building markets, but also of building discipline. 
Think of the EU with Spain or think of the EU with Poland, the examples that I use. Um, it's been a great tool of discipline in terms of internal policy uh, and Spain benefited enormously by having that, that tool both to maintain its political as well as its economic uh, system post the Franco dictatorship. Um, and then I think perhaps the most revealing lesson of all is, is the period of recovery is at least as long as the period of decline. And in South Africa we've had a 30-year rugby match or football match. The first half was okay. Maybe 13 of the first 15 years were okay up until uh, about 2007. And then a combination of the global financial crisis and internal ructions in the ANC have produced a spectacularly poor 17 years. Uh, and really the, the period of decline is going to be hard. It's going to involve very tough decisions and it's probably going to involve a degree of, of resetting our politics because after all, and this is the last lesson, uh, development is a political game. It's not a technical game. It's a game about getting the politics right to get the right outcomes in what we understand to be a, after all, a political economy, not just an economic system. That was Greg Mills discussing his book, Rich States, Poor States.